So this morning, I'm going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. And the title that I've given it is Hell and Hope at Christmas. It's probably not the sort of title you would normally expect at Christmas. It doesn't sound quite so cheery. Uh, so we're going to have a bit of a journey through this uh, part of the story of the, uh, the Advent events. So we're in Matthew chapter 2, and we're starting to read at verse 1. And this is where this clicker is temperamental. There we go. Did you move that or did me? Did I? You did it. Okay. So if you see me doing this or nodding, just move it for me. That's great. Okay. So Matthew 22. Matthew 2. Um, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King he saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be consoled because they are no more. I've moved forward too much there. There we go. After Herod had died, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph 
in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I don't know where, what your thoughts are when reading through that passage. It's a big chunk of text and there's a lot of it going on there. And some of the stuff there is the stuff of uh, our uh, Christmas um, Advent services in our schools. And some of the stuff there is stuff that's very often missed out. I guess there's a bit of a pick and mix going on. And I went to Tesco this week after work and did some shopping. And while I was there, I was tempted by a large and beautiful tin of Quality Street. And uh, seeing as it was reduced in price, I decided I was going to get that and uh, bring it home with the rest of the shopping. It wasn't on the shopping list, by the way. Uh, This was a bit of a bonus and an added extra. Now, I don't know what it's like in your house and what happens with a tin of Quality Street. But there is a sort of hierarchy of sweets that disappear sooner rather than later. Now, is that true in anybody else's house? Okay, there's a lot of you there. Uh, Now, Hannah was working uh, away. She was uh, over in um, Edinburgh, I think. And just during the 24 hours that she wasn't in the house, pretty much every toffee penny and toffee finger had gotten eaten. And uh, most of the strawberry creams as well. Now, that's because most of those are my favorites. Trish also likes the, uh, the toffees too. So the most common refrain that's ever heard in our house at Christmas is, where have all the toffees gone? That's what happens. And uh, of course, when you get to the end of a tin of quality street, what's left? The little green wrappers with all the coconut covered ones in. Is that, is that true in anybody else's? Are the coconut ones gone like? You, wa- you want them? Oh. oh, and the strawberries. Okay. Now, we went to John Lewis last weekend uh, in Glasgow. And I don't know if you've come across this. I, I have always sort of dreamed. I've always thought, why can't, why can't the manufacturers just, just put the sweets in that I want and not the others that I don't? Anyway, they've got this big stall at John Lewis, and they've got all the sweets separated into big, has anybody seen this? Into big separate sections. And Trish was off somewhere else. I think she was looking for perfume. And, and this, again, it wasn't on the list. I went across to the, the counter there, and they said, what would you like? I said, I want lots of chocolate, uh, lots of toffee pennies, lots of toffee fingers, and lots of strawberry creams. And they put them into this fantastic, I'm doing a good sales job here, actually, aren't I? Into this cardboard cracker. And then I hid it in the bottom of my bag. And I've, don't tell Trish, I've smuggled it into the house, and I've hidden it in my cupboard in the bedroom. And the reason it's hidden there is that's where I keep the Christmas presents I've bought, and Trish knows she's not allowed to look there. Which means she'll never find out that I've got all the toffees there. Isn't that brilliant? I, I, I am just so skillful at this, you wouldn't believe. Anyway, 
I think I told you last time my devious efforts to get a bigger TV. I'm, I'm always going to confess at least once in every time I preach. Anyway, why am I telling you that? The reason I'm telling you that is because we get a bit selective with the Christmas story, don't we? We've got all of our favorite bits that we like gathering and putting together. And then there's the rubbish bits that we leave at the bottom of the tin and we really don't want to include. And, and even when it comes to the little school Advent services, that is also the case as well. Well, what I want to think about initially is just something around the magic of Christmas. And of course, we've got the Magi here. Now, what do I mean when I say the magic? I guess I mean the, the sort of all of the wonder and the, the, the glitz of Christmas that we all love and like. I think wonder is a lovely word, isn't it? I love I love a sense of wonder. Where we live in Octorado, we have got great views of the sky, and especially of the sky at night. And that when the clocks change at this time of the year, uh, I can stand on my doorstep and I can see Mars in the sky because I'm interested in the stars and the planets. I know which one's which. I can see Mars over towards the direction of Perth and straight in front of me is Jupiter right up there. Last year, I got my camera out in the garden. I took some photos. I got a photo of the Orion Nebula. It was like completely fantastic. I got frozen. I had frost all over my camera. It was that cold. Anyway, Trish is looking at me and she's saying, get on with it. Uh, so why am I telling you this? Well, these magi were star watchers. They were stargazers. They were from another part of the world, but they were used to looking at what was in the sky at night and having a sense of wonder, but they also knew when something was new, when something appeared that should not have been there. What I really you know, think is fantastic about this story is how God can speak to people through creation. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I love living in Scotland. Why? Because I'm surrounded by so much of what God has made. You know, the locks and the mountains and the seas and the islands. I constantly am in a state of wonder. And I see so much more of the sky up here in Scotland too. I feel so small in the sight of a God who is so infinitely huge and awesome. God can speak through creation. And he can speak to people who aren't the people of God. He can speak to people from other lands. And God can speak to people supernaturally, even to those who are open. In this particular story, he speaks to the Magi. And he reveals something to them in a way that perhaps we don't even know and understand that leads them to follow this star. What we realize is that God isn't limited in how he speaks to people. He, he can just delve into people's lives and meet them, even here through stars and dreams. I don't know how many Muslims you know that have become Christians, but I have known a few. And one of the things that's really struck me is how many of them have said that Jesus revealed himself to them in dreams. Isn't that incredible? In this story, we are seeing people multiple times, the Magi, Joseph, spoken to through dreams. God can do amazing things in amazing ways with people that we don't know, even way outside the church, and reveal himself. What a wondrous and amazing thing this is. So I wonder at this time of the year what it is that you're left in wonder about at Christmas. What parts of the Christmas story are you selecting out and which are the bits that you're leaving? 
well, you know, we've got the glamour and glitz of wise men and shepherds. We've got the baby Jesus in a stable, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We love all of that stuff. Trees and tinsel. Anybody got the trees up yet? Not many of you, unless you're not willing to raise your hand and admit it. There we go. We've got some of you have got your trees up. Ribbons, presents, mince pies and turkey, snowmen and reindeer. The reality is when we stop and sit down and watch the TV, for example, and look at all of the adverts and try to learn what Christmas is all about, you really haven't got a clue. The TV's view of Christmas is just some sort of mythical thing which Jesus is completely lost in. One of the things that I realize is, based on what people select and what they chuck from the Christmas story, is that most people will happily look at baby Jesus because a baby doesn't really offend them. But they will not look at King Jesus. They'll select that part and leave it to one side. All parts of the wonder of a magical Christmas. But those really important parts have been edited out and we're given an edited version of a Christmas. It's what I call a cuddly Christmas. You know, when you, when you watch all of the adverts, you just get this idea of a, a lovely, cuddly Christmas. The reality is that our culture, our nation has been anesthetized by the cuddly Christmas to what the true meaning of Christmas really is. And so I think it's really important this morning that we don't just look at one part of the story all the wise men coming in and the baby and the gold frankincense and myrrh, we need to look at the really uncomfortable bits of it as well. And so that's why I want us to think about the reality of Christmas that we find in the text itself. The context here, just to remind you, is that Israel had been invaded and occupied by foreign military powers, the Romans. Now, over the last few years, we've been used to seeing ISIS in the Middle East, and ISIS uh, used the beheading as an instrument of fear. What did the Romans use as an instrument of fear? They used crucifixion. It was the sort of ISIS version of beheading of its day. And that is what Israel was going through when all of this lovely, cuddly Christmas stuff is supposed to be happening. Invaded and occupied. Then... In a part of the country, there was a puppet government. There was King Herod, who was a Jew, but really wasn't living a very Jewish, faithful life to God at all. He was a corrupt king, backed by Roman occupiers. And he was told to subdue all of the opposition that came up in the land. It was deceitful leadership. He really wasn't interested in the truth. After all, he told the Magi, if you find this baby... Come back and tell me because I want to worship him. Now, of course, that was a complete lie. Herod, like many puppet leaders today, used word and truth and manipulated them for his own ends. It was simply fake news. Now, that was the background to where Jesus, this baby, arrived. It's not the sort of stuff that we really see much of in the school uh, Advent plays, is it? And then, of course, something terrible and awful happened. Now, you might be looking at the screen and wondering what picture I've put up there. That's actually a picture from 1995 uh, from Srebrenica. And that's a picture from the Srebrenica massacre. You might remember that uh, the Serbian army murdered 8,000 civilians by rounding them up 
mostly males, but men, uh, boys, and children, and then took them deep into the woods and shot them and buried them in deep trenches. The Srebrenica massacre. That sort of stuff happens today. That sort of stuff was happening in Israel at the very time that baby Jesus arrived in our world. I said just before that a baby doesn't offend and it doesn't challenge either. Well, the reality is that isn't entirely true because this baby, baby Jesus did offend and he did challenge. He challenged the power and the reign of Herod and he was, he was absolutely intent on wiping that out. And he was so intent on wiping it out that he initiated a massacre of all the baby boys under two years old in the Bethlehem area. I mean, he was, he was going for broke here. He, he wasn't going to miss anybody, so he just chose a two-year... He wasn't sure whether this baby was born when the star appeared or when the star arrived. So he just decided, I'm going to pick a two-year period and all of these babies are going to be gone. His motivation wasn't just the threat of Jesus as a king, but it tells us in the passage here that he was absolutely furious at being outwitted by the Magi, and he let his anger overtake him. And so he inaugurated this appalling massacre. Now, that was 1995, the Srebrenica massacre. But the reality is that we have seen atrocities this year in Europe taking place in the Ukraine. This Christmas, in the light of Ukraine, where there are also occupying forces, where there are puppet governments in occupied territories there, where there have been massacres and war crimes, all appalling atrocities, that is a reminder that the same situation was happening in the days of Jesus back there in Israel. God understands what we're going through because he went through it then. The question is, when we see all of this terrible stuff, what are we meant to do about it? What is our response? I don't know about you, it's very easy when you're watching it on the TV just to change channels because it's too uncomfortable to see. And then we just distract ourselves. The Bible's response consistently, particularly when you look at the Old Testament, to stuff like this is something that we call lament. It is to cry out in God, to God. It is to release our tears, our distress, our protest and complaint and yell it out to heaven. The apostle, the, rather the prophet Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And he said this when he looked at Israel. He said, what I see with my eyes brings grief to my heart. I wonder this year whether what you have seen with your eyes has brought grief to your heart. The part of faith for all of us as Christians is that we believe in the goodness of God. And we're called, therefore, to question everything that isn't good. But what happens? What do we do if it means questioning God himself? Like Job did. Like, Job did, like the psalmists did. What if it means asking, why God? Why don't you do something? Why do you allow such horrors in our world? 
And that is the big philosophical problem of the Bible, the problem of evil. Why, why does God let these things happen? Why is he letting human history run out and these terrible events take place? I don't know if any of you have ever watched the movie Bruce Almighty. Um, I think it's a real cracking film. It's got some really good things that it addresses. Tom Shadiak, by the way, who's the director, is a Christian. Uh, before that movie, he'd made Liar Liar. It's, got a, it's a really good moral tale as well. And both films have the comedian Jim Carrey in it. If you've watched the movie, you might remember that Bruce has an absolutely terrible day. And it culminates in him crashing his car. And he gets out of the car and he starts yelling at the sky and yelling at God. And he shouts, the only one round here not doing his job is you. And as a result of that challenge to God, God comes down and meets him and uh, says, well, basically, if you think you can do better, I'm going to give you all of my power. Go off and see what you can do with it. But the one thing he said is, you cannot mess with free will. There's a brilliant scene later in the movie where Bruce realizes that if he can't mess with free will, there's a lot of things he can't do to change in the world. And he says to him, how do you make somebody love you without messing with free will? And God replies, welcome to my world. Well, Bruce says the only one around here not doing his job is you. Let me say to you this. If you're living in certain parts of the world, it might well be that those are the words that have occurred to you. If you were a Christian in Ukraine and you've watched the terror and the horror and the atrocities, you might well wonder what on earth God is doing and why isn't he sorting it out. But what I want to say to you this morning is very often in the church as Christians, we're not really very comfortable with the idea of lament, of crying out, of protesting to God. A lot of the time when we come to church, we want to sing the happy praise songs, and we really don't know what to do with the difficult stuff of life. A couple of years ago, uh, I felt so strongly about a particular issue, I went down to London to join a protest march. I don't know if anybody here has ever joined a protest march. I went. I was the only one in my family who decided to go, so I went down on my own. Uh, my son works in London, and he, he told me where I needed to go, and it was interestingly, started right outside All Souls Langham Place, so I queued up. I was so eager to get in the protest, um, I got there a couple of hours early, and uh, people gathered, and then the march set off, and as we were marching, my, by the way, my son had told me the march was supposed to finish at Trafalgar Square, so there I was walking along the part of this march, there's lots of people with banners protesting, and it was supposed to go to Trafalgar Square. Anyway, I was going along and I was looking around. And I was thinking, there's an awful lot of women here in this protest. Uh, and, and I'm a man. I mean, like, this is a bit strange. And then I started thinking, do you know what? I am really appalled that it's only mostly women here protesting. Where are all the men? Anyway, the march carried on. And um, we didn't end up at Trafalgar Square at all. We ended up at Parliament Square right next to the statue of Winston Churchill. So I rang my son uh, because I was supposed to be meeting him, and he said, where are you? He said, I'll come and meet you at Trafalgar. I said, no, I'm at Parliament. He said, what are you doing there? He, I said, well, I joined the march. He said, Dad, which march did you join? He said, you've joined the feminists' march. 
I said, I wondered why there was so many women. I couldn't believe it. Anyway, I can guarantee you at my funeral, in my eulogy, my son will be telling that story. So I thought, I better get there in first and tell you. So there you go. I'm a great feminist, apparently. So so there, there we have it. There we have it. Now, the point is this. We don't want to imply that God doesn't know what he's doing when we protest. But we don't always know and understand what God is doing and why he's doing it. But there's something important that happens in the passage which I need to point out. Before the massacre started, God warned the Magi in a dream not to go back to Herod. Before the massacre happened, God warned Joseph in a dream that the massacre was going to happen so that they could flee to Egypt. Joseph, Mary, the baby Jesus were refugees. And if you are a refugee this morning, God wants you to know that you are not alone. He wants you to know that he has traveled that journey with you. And whether you are at home or whether you are here, God has not left you and he has not abandoned you. Jesus understands. And more than that, God has a plan. I remember earlier in the year, um, we have a a great big solid oak, a very long um, dining table in our kitchen, and we have a TV on the wall, and when Trish and I have our breakfast, we sit and watch breakfast news. And this particular morning, there was a report about some of the terrible atrocities that Russian soldiers have been committing against Ukrainian families, murdering civilians in cold blood in the streets. And I was just sat there with toast in my hand, in one hand, and I could feel the anger within me rising and rising, and my my jaw clenched, my teeth were gritted, and I felt my fist gather like this. And at one point, I just absolutely smashed my fist down on the table and yelled out loud, no, enough. I just felt within me a pure sense of righteous wrath for what I was seeing in front of my eyes. Now, I don't know if you ever feel like that, but there are moments when we do, and there are moments when we feel like that, then we are tapping into a part and an aspect of God's character. Now, if I felt like that as a sinful human being, I wonder what God, the almighty God, the Holy One, the creator of heaven and earth. I wonder what he really feels when he sees all these terrible things. In his holiness, God speaks to sin and evil, and he says, no, enough, no more. Now, the reality is I can tell you that that's what God thinks. I can tell you that that's what God says. But inside of us, all of us are thinking, so what is God doing about it? Well, I want to tell you this morning that God has a two-part plan to destroy sin and evil. And the first part involves the wrath of God being revealed, and it's revealed through God's law. Before Jesus ever came to this world, God gave us Torah. The Jews, he gave them the law. And through that was revealed the righteous standards of God. And in a sense, what was also revealed was, was God's judgment. 
the first part of God's plan, the first part of God's solution for destroying sin and evil is to judge it. Now, what that means is we cannot pretend it isn't real. We cannot pretend it doesn't exist. We cannot make any excuses for it. Sin is sin. Evil is evil. And God sees it. So he judges it. That's the first part. But thank God, there is a second part to the plan. Because part two of the plan involves the grace of God. And instead of just judging sin and evil, God's part two is to forgive it. Wow. That means, folks, that this Christmas, we don't have to stick with just the grim reality of this first Christmas. Something deeper and more profound is revealed to us here in the mission of God, the very purpose of what Christmas was all about. Matthew, in these verses, tells us that at least four Old Testament prophecies were being fulfilled just in this part of the nativity story alone. This phrase, so what was fulfilled, so, so, it, so was fulfilled, rather, what the prophet had written. That's the phrase that keeps recurring. What does that tell us? It tells us that God doesn't just have a plan. God had a plan. God could see beforehand the direction that this stuff was headed. And he had a plan and an intent, a very purpose behind Christmas itself. Now, when we look at the atrocities that we've seen this year, and when we look back at what Herod did in slaughtering all of these baby boys, we are left wondering what weapon will God use to destroy sin and evil? Well, the Old Testament prophets started to tell us that something was coming, that something, even somebody, was on their way. But what would that weapon be? The amazing truth is that the weapon God sent to destroy sin and evil wasn't some great warrior general. It was a baby. Now, I don't know about you, but if a baby got parachuted into the front lines of Ukraine, I think we would probably look at that and go, what on earth is happening? There is an absolute mystery in the purposes of God. The incarnation of God made flesh is the very mission of God to our world. In the Christmas story, God's doing something really unexpected. Unlike in the story of Moses and the Exodus, God didn't choose at this time to send a destroying angel upon the enemy. I mean, he could have done, but he didn't take that option. He isn't smashing his fist right down upon the earth right now, even though he could do that. God is doing something himself. In this baby Jesus, God is stepping down into the mess with us. He will be God with us. In fact, he is God with us. I'll put a picture up on the screen here of the uh, United States Coast Guard rescue helicopter. They do something over there that's slightly different to what we do over here. Over here, you'd get the Coast Guard winching somebody down and landing in a boat and helping somebody up and then winching them back. But the United States Coast Guard rescue helicopters, 
have these specialist rescue swimmers. If you want to see a good movie about this, if you like Kevin Costner, watch the movie The Guardian. You'll get a really good look at what this is like. It's amazing. They drop, literally drop somebody in to the very danger and peril that the person who needs rescuing is in. This is a brilliant picture of what God has done in Christ. God is jumping down into the storm, the storm of this world, the storm of judgment against sin. He is with us in the worst of stuff. Jesus was blamed, he was attacked, he was tortured, he was murdered. You think God doesn't understand what you're going through? He understands. He's been here, he is here. He's with you. If only you could see. He hasn't left. He hasn't given up. There is hope in a baby. But this hope doesn't mean that he hasn't given up on our, our enemies either. Sorry, let me say that again. This hope means he hasn't given up on our enemies either. This is the uncomfortable bit, perhaps. God asks us to pray for our enemies. Let me say, if they do not meet God at the cross, they will encounter his wrath eventually, the wrath of the holy God face to face in judgment in the end, and that literally will be hell. You might say, well, of your enemies, well, that's what they deserve. And yes, you're right, they do. But it's what we deserve too. And if we receive God's mercy, then we have a heavenly purpose here on earth to share that mercy even to those that we might hate and most definitely to those that hate us. This is how God wants to destroy sin and evil in our world, not simply by judging it, but by forgiving it. Now the question is, folks, will we stop God's healing of the cosmos by stopping this spiritual chain reaction? Will we throw hate, unforgiveness, resentment, even unforgiveness or resentment about other Christians, will we throw that stuff into the spinning wheels and gears of God's plan to save the world? What do we do this Christmas when on TV we see bombed out cities Orphan children, refugees fleeing their homes to foreign lands in their millions. What do we do? Well, I tell you what we don't do, along with the rest of our world, we don't ignore it. We don't anesthetize ourselves to it with a cuddly Christmas. We don't distract ourselves from it. We cry. We cry out. We protest to God. This is not how it's meant to be. We lament. And as we do that, we encounter the heart of God who also cries out from heaven, enough. And when we do that, folks, we start to join God in his plan to destroy evil. Not our plan. Not our way. His plan. His way. And it'll work. Do you know how I know it'll work? Because it's already worked for you. Already. This is the hope of the world. This isn't a cozy, cuddly hope, folks. This is a tough hope. 
This is steely hope, fiery hope. This hope isn't just for Christmas, it's forever. This hope, though, has to start inside the church. Forgiving your brothers and your sisters. Putting aside what really are petty differences. Speaking to one another again. Having restored relationships. Not living a pretend Christianity. Let me say this. This is probably the most important thing I'm ever going to say to you today. How can there be hope for the world if there isn't hope in the church? We have to let that hope be set free amongst us. It starts with us. It starts with each other. And from there, it's a chain reaction out into our community. There are two sides to every bit of adversity when God is in the picture. And Joseph here, as a dad, is a perfect example. They were refugees. Now, there was two ways of looking at their refugee story. They were refugees in Egypt because Herod had enacted a massacre and planned to kill baby Jesus. That's one way of telling the story. It's the, it's, the, it's the way of telling the story that says how terrible things are, how evil our enemy is. That's one way of seeing the refugee story. But there is another way of reading that same story. They were refugees in Egypt because God had planned to save them. Amen? Even where there is terrible stuff at work and an enemy wants to bring us down, God is at work there as well, bringing salvation and rescue and working out mysteriously in ways we do not understand his plan and his purpose. Joni Mitchell sang a song a long time ago. I have looked at life from both sides now. Folks, we need to see this story from both sides. The terrible stuff that's happening but the amazing awesomeness of a sovereign God who has a mysterious plan to save. All the way back in Genesis 45, one of Jesus' ancient ancestors, Joseph, had been sold into slavery in Egypt. Decades later, he was to meet the very brothers who sold him as a slave. They fell before him in mercy, but amazing grace poured out of the heart of Joseph. And he said this. He said this to his brothers. You intended evil, but God intended good. That doesn't mean that God planned the horrors, planned the, the slavery. What it means is that in every act of evil, we can make a different choice and have the intention to do good in the face of terrible things. We can look at life from one side or the other of these two perspectives. Folks, this morning there is a mighty mystery at work in this Christmas. This amazing, magical, awesome, beautiful Christmas. The job of the Christian in the light of all of this is to always, always choose hope.